0: I am sure many of you have wandered through a toy store or gift shop, and you've come across this little toy, have you not? It's called pen art. It's too expensive to buy, but it's fun to play with when you pick it up in the aisle. And everybody does the same thing. You press your hand into it, and just like magic, you turn it over, and your hand is on the other side. Those who are a little less discerning stick their face into it. How many other have been pressed into the same mold? But it's kind of magic. It's it's a cool tool. It's a cool toy. These little steel pins come out as you make a, an impression, as you make an imprint of your face or your hand. And this picture is the picture I want us to have in mind today as we look at our text, because my sermon is built around just one word, and that's in verse seventeen, imitation. Imitation. In the Greek, uh, that means to strike a blow in a way that leaves an impression. So you're not just seeing something and trying to mimic it. You're not just hearing some information and then trying to process that. Something's actually happened or someone has actually happened to you to press into you, to, to mold you like clay, and because of their impression... That you imitate them, they, you begin to look like them. it 's a kind of impression that requires physical contact. Proverbs 27:17 describes what Paul is talking about when it says, "As iron sharpens iron." So one person sharpens another. It's that, that picture. You've got a, a dull piece of iron that has to come into physical contact with a harder piece of iron in order, to, in order for it to be reshaped. One, one piece of iron shapes the other. And in this sermon, I want to address really just two questions around this one word, imitation. Why do we need people to imitate when we have Jesus? Second question, what exactly is Paul asking us to imitate? If we have Jesus, why do we need anybody else to imitate? Secondly, well, if we are supposed to imitate other folks, what specifically is Paul asking us to imitate? That's what I want us to look at this morning. First of all, why do we need to imitate others when we have Jesus? We've discussed previously this key passage in the letter Uh, Philippians 2 uh, 5 through 8 where Paul says clearly you need to imitate Christ and then he tells you how he does it he he empties himself he becomes a servant and he says in verse 5 have this mind among yourselves know the mind of Christ and have it among yourself in other words you're supposed to imitate you're supposed to follow after the mind of Christ and then he explains to you here are some of these characteristics in verses 6 7 and 8. So we're called to imitate the character of Christ, and if we're supposed to imitate Jesus, then why do we need anybody else? It's a question I have, and I want to give three reasons why we need somebody else first. And this is the easiest answer. Well, the Bible tells us that we need other people. So that could just be the end of this point right here. Uh, Paul says, imitate me. He basically says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 9. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the writer says this, Remember your leaders, consider their way of life, and imitate them. There are going to be people around you that are going to be in leadership position. Examine, consider their way of life. And of course, they're not perfect, but there are things about them you should be imitating. Second, if imitation requires physical contact, not just verbal instruction then we need to have people in our lives who are close enough that can put their hands on us see if all we needed was the Bible, then we just wouldn't need another person. We just have this book of instructions. We'd read it and say, well, this is what the Bible says. Now I need to do it. And of course, that's super helpful. Obviously, God's word is transformative, but God knows we're, we're meant to be in community with each other. We're meant to be in proximity to each other. And so we need somebody to be in physical contact with us to say, I know you're reading it, but it's more like this way and and they press in on you to say, It's this way, not not that way. I've used this illustration a few times before. It's perfect for here. My daughter Morgan was in ballet for many years. And you know, you're in the studio. I'm not in the studio, she's in the studio. You has got a cute little tutu on or whatever, right? And in the very beginning, you're learning these positions, first position, second position, third position. And you've got an instructor, you've got a teacher showing you, you know, be like this, not, not like, like I am, but like a beautiful ballerina. And so you've got a teacher and you have a giant mirror. But that's not enough the teacher actually would come over to Morgan and put her hands on her arm or put her hands on her foot or her knee or her hand and say, no, like this, and move it ever so slightly. See, it wasn't enough just to have somebody say it to you. Look, you're supposed to look like this. It wasn't enough for me to just show it to you. Somebody had to come over and put their hands and say, that's not quite right. It's more like this. And that's what Paul is talking about. We need people. Everyone needs people. I need people to come into our lives and say, yeah, I know you're reading it this way, but it's really more like this. And think more like this or act more like this or be more shaped in this way. And so we can't just have some text here. We actually have to have a person. Paul understands that. Jesus understands that. I think this is why Paul in chapter 2 is sending Timothy and Epaphroditus. Remember that? These two guys that are sort of in this inner circle with Paul, he's sending them back to Philippi with the letter. Why doesn't he just send the letter? Why why doesn't he need to send people? Well, Paul knows the letter's not enough. I mean, this is a great letter. I've loved it. But the letter's not enough. We need people to say, this is what it looks like in real life. I need you in some close proximity to me. I need you to say, Paul, you're not getting it quite right. It's more like this. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are going to be those kinds of people. Sermons are terrific. You're supposed to say amen to that. I I prompted several of you that missed that cue. Sermons are terrific, but they're not enough. You, you need to be in a small group. You need to be in some kind of accountability. You need some people that have some proximity to your life, that have permission to put their hands on you to say, no, like this. That's, that's why we need people near us. Last week, the elder sent out an email about an upcoming sabbatical that I'm planning, which is going to be the, the last two weeks in June and the month of July. And as part of the sabbatical time, I've enrolled in uh, something called the Soul Care Institute. I'll send you a link to it later. And it's really a two-year program, and you go, uh, I'm going to a location in Greensboro, for a week at a time, three times a year over two years. And it's really a chance for me to sit where you are, Somebody present, somebody help me with spiritual direction, and I'm asking them, Would you put your hands on me and say, Paul, more like this? See, because I, I spend a lot of my time doing that for other people. It's very hard for me to get that for myself. It would be very easy for me to get misshapen. And so I have to have somebody, see, I'm not different than you. I'm standing here and you're sitting there, but I've got the same need for somebody in proximity. I can't just say, well, I listened to a good conference online. As helpful as that is, that's not enough. I need somebody to sit there and say, no, your soul is getting a little bit off or twisted. I'm going to help you move it back in the right direction like, like this. And my prayer for you is you have somebody like that in your life that you've given permission to say you can put your hands on me maybe not literally but I'm giving you permission to help mold me into the image of Christ everybody has to have that third reason why we need somebody is we need visible inspiration and encouragement you need to be able to see it you need to be able to say I know that I've I've personally experienced that in some way in chapter 3, verse 12, which I want to read to you, Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained all this or I've been made perfect. He's talking about living a life for Christ. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to this goal of reaching Christ. Everybody needs to see somebody pressing on so you get encouraged. When you're getting discouraged, when you, when you begin to drift away from your faith, you need somebody in proximity to give inspiration and say, that's right, I need to be going in that way, or I need to be encouraging in that way. Jesus understands this. John chapter 13, in the upper room, you wash the disciples' feet. Talk about putting your hands on somebody. I mean, just try to imagine being a disciple a year later, just putting on your sandals, washing your feet. The imprint of having the risen Lord have washed your feet. He didn't just give them instructions. He actually did it. He put his hands on their feet. And after he's done, he looks at the table and he looks at all the 12 faces He said, did you you see what I just did? You do the same. You go physically put your hands on other people just like I did. Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not neglect meeting together, but to encourage each other. And all the more as we see the, the day approaching, whether that's the day, our last day, or whether that's the second coming of Christ, all the more you need to continue to meet together because it's easy to get uh, dislodged. It's easy to drift. It's easy to get discouraged. And so you've got to meet together and say, no, I'm, I'm coming back here and I'm encouraged to, to press on. And you need, we need each other as visible, tangible people to say, that's right, live this way. We mentioned last week Sarah Messer, one of our members, older members, died. She died on Ash Wednesday. Sarah was always very, if you knew her, always a very generous person, generous with her, her spirit, generous generous with her kindness, generous, generous with her encouragement, and generous with her finances. And every time I would call Sarah, she was mostly concerned because she was a teacher of young children What's happening with the tutoring program? What's happening with the children's ministry? How can I give? How can I support? I can't physically be there, but is there some way I can financially support? Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, she died. And the following Monday, now this is just this past Monday, five days later, we received in a check in the mail from Sarah Messer. So my guess is the day of her death or the day before, she wrote out a check see, you, do you, are, you, are you getting that? She pressed all the way to the end. She didn't coast. She had limitations, but what God had given her, she, she's using, she's pressing on. I would say, if you knew Sarah, she was gaining speed spiritually towards the end. She wasn't backing off. And that was an, a massive encouragement to me, just to see this woman continue to give all the way to the finish line. Uh, imagine writing a check and a few hours later being in the presence of the Lord. I mean, that's, isn't that incredible? Well done, good and faithful steward of your time, steward of your finances. So you need people, you need examples that are tangible in your life that can put their hands on you and and shape you more like in Christ's image. So that's the answer to the first question. Why, Why do we need other people to imitate? Second, what exactly is Paul asking the Philippians and us to imitate? And it's interesting here in verse 18, the first thing he does is he offers a warning. Don't walk this way. Notice that with me. Brothers, join in imitating me. This is verse 17. Keep your eyes on those who walk. She's going to use the same uh, analogy. Walk according to the example of having us. For many of those who, whom I often told you about, and now tell you now, even with tears, they walk in a different direction. They're walking as enemies of Christ. So his first thing is a warning. Don't don't walk in this direction. And why? Verse 19, because their end is destruction. He's just pleading with them, with tears. Some people have walked away. It, it may feel good for a moment, but it is a highway that leads to destruction. Please do not get on that highway, Paul is saying. And maybe he has in mind Jesus' word from Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to, what does it say? Destruction. Same word. It's so easy to get on the wide highway, and with tears I watch people get on that on-ramp to the highway of destruction. And Paul says, don't do that. And then he provides, I think, three warning signs. Three warning signs for the people in Philippi, three warning signs for us today on whether we might be migrating or drifting towards that highway. We can see them all here. And before I read the text, I want to offer a warning. This is a warning before the warning. Don't be proud in your listening. Don't don't listen to these three things and think, "Well, that can't happen to me." Don't think, "Oh, this is great for my neighbor." This is great for the person sitting next to me. This is great for somebody. I got to get this sermon to somebody else cuz they're on this highway. Don't don't think that way. If you think that way, you that might be a first signal that you're in real danger. There's a true story about a proud ship captain heading directly into an oncoming ship. His name was Frank Moran. And so he signaled to the other ship, Turn around. Uh, Then the person signaled back, No, you turn around. And then he came back and said, No, you turn around. This is the SSS Poseidon, and I'm Captain Frank Moran. And finally, the other ship signaled back to the proud captain, saying, Turn around, this is the lighthouse. And you're about to hit the rocks. See, don't, don't be too proud. Don't sail full steam ahead into the highway of destruction. Listen, listen. First warning sign. Let's just look at verse 19 because they're all listed here. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame because they have their minds set on earthly things. Those are the three things. Number one, first warning sign, their minds are set on earthly things. This is the signal. This might, you think of, here's the arrow that says, here's how you begin your journey on the highway to destruction. Just your mind shifts. Instead of in chapter 2, verse 5, you have your mind set on Christ, now you have your mind set on the world. I begin to have hungers and desires and appetites for the world, and my mind just drifts that way. I wake up in the morning, and I think about money. I wake up in the morning, and I start my routine with anger. I wake up in the morning, and I turn to whatever that is. That's just your mindset. It begins to move in that direction. This is the beginning of the on-ramp. One of the saddest characters in the Bible was one of Paul's friends, a guy named Demas. He's mentioned three times. Two times he's mis- mentioned just at the end of these letters that he just says, these people also send your greetings. Luke, Mark, Timothy, Demas. But a third time he's mentioned in Second Timothy, Paul's last letter. And Paul writes this to Timothy. Timothy, come to me quickly for Demas because he loved this present world has abandoned me. Oh. That's all we know about Demas. He was in the inner circle, but his mind began to drift. And his hungers, his appetites, his desires began to drift towards the world. And, and he got on the highway to destruction. And oh, you want to know what happened to Demas. You want to ask, I mean, did Demas get off the highway before it was too late? But we we don't know. So the first warning sign, and you just have to assess for yourself, is my mind just drifting to the things of the world? Are my hungers for the things of the world, are all my desires, are all my appetites going to be satisfied if the world provides it for me? If that's the way your mind is drifting, you're getting on the on-ramp that leads to destruction. Don't get on that ramp. Second, without God at the center because our minds have drifted. Paul is just so, such a great counselor here. Our minds have drifted off God, the, the creator. We have to have a replacement God. We have to have a little g God. Everybody is a worshiper. We're designed to be worshipers. So we're going to worship something. It's not a matter if you're a worshiper or not worshiper. It's just a matter of what is it you're worshiping. And so we have to have uh, a different God. We trade it in. And the second sign, their God, is their belly. You see that? I've traded in the big G God for the little G God. My my hungers, this is what belly means, my appetites, my desires. And this is where James 1.14 I think is helpful because James just diagnoses the problem and he just dials right in. Let's look at it together again. For each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You see that? I've got my eyes set on something, and it's like the fish hook. I just got to bite that bait, but it's got a hook in it. Then when you bite it, that desire get, conceives, gives birth to sin, and then when fully grown, it leads to destruction. James lays out this on-ramp. You're your desires, your appetites, your hungers call out to your mind, satisfy me, satisfy me, satisfy me. You, almost all of us have had something like that, have we not? You can think of it right now. It just becomes so controlling. I've got to say something. I've got to have something. I've got to look at something. I've got to buy something. I've got to, whatever that is, and it feels like I can't stop it. Feed me. Those become God you have to obey those desires and you're no longer ruling over those desires they're actually ruling over you and those desires lead to destruction third you glory in their shame your mind drifts or moves from the things of the world from the things of god to the things of the world Once they do, you adopt another God. There's something out here that if I just get this thing, it controls you now. And then you give in. You give in. You're lured away. You feed your hunger, whether it's lust or anger or ego. And when you do, you're not proud of it. But for a moment, it felt really good. And then you can't stop. And you have to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. And because you want to think good of yourself, you don't want to think you're a disgraceful person. What do you do? So key. You justify. Everybody here knows what I'm talking about. That used to be shameful, but now I have to obey it. I have to have it. I can't think of myself as a person like that, so I justify it. I give myself space to say, well, because of where I am or because of this particular situation, it's okay to step into this thing. And what we previously used to call wrong, now we say is right. You glory in things that were previously shameful. An entire nation can get on this road. It's not just relegated to a person. In the Old Testament, this is what happens to Israel. They take their eyes off Christ or off God, and they move them to the world, mostly idolatry. They're on a highway of destruction. And this is how Isaiah, listen, how he diagnoses the problem. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. See what's happened? They used to see these things. They called them good. Now they call them e- Or they said they were, they were evil. Now they call them good. They, they've gotten on this highway. They're beginning to justify their behavior. And I want to give two, I think, hard but more relevant cultural examples, examples for us. We live in an increasingly misshapen culture especially around the issues of sexuality. And I don't know if you saw this the news this week that the Hasbro toy company that makes Mr. Potato Head is dropping the Mr. Now it's just called Potato Head. And they did that in a way to break away from gender norms. <clears throat> I think they've received some serious pushback on that and may reconsider. That's silly. It's a toy. Much more serious, an HBO special called Transhood actually shows a church service where a mom and a four-year-old boy come up on stage and the boy, too shy to say anything, has, is up there because he wants to let everybody know that he's transitioning as a four-year-old boy to a girl. So the mom announces this to the congregation. And instead of being terribly concerned why a four-year-old boy might think this, he celebrated. Th- this is the highway that leads to Destruction. Leads to destruction of a person, leads to destruction of a family, leads to destruction of a nation. And for those who are here who are maybe under 30, you're going to have a lot of pressure put on you. It won't be enough just to accept. You're going to have to celebrate. If you don't celebrate the differences, you're going to be labeled. You're going to be outcast. So it's going to be very easy to get on the wide road with your language, with your, with your acknowledgement of something. Don't, don't get on that road. That's a road that leads to destruction. Sadly, maybe more personally painful... We as followers of Christ, we have these warning signs. We're, we're listening to them. We're looking at this one verse. We have them. We know them, but yet we deceive ourselves. This is what James says. Don't, don't deceive yourself. Breakpoint article. Breakpoint is a ministry started by Chuck Colson. Article last week about the shameful double life of Ravi Zacharias. Really... The most famous Christian apologist in our time. Ravi used religious language and the power of his position to abuse women. He would talk about the Bible to these women in order for him to get pleasure. He used his position, his power. It, it's shocking, it's shameful. There's no, no, I can't say any, any bigger words. Here's the title of the article. The infinite human capacity to deceive ourselves and then rationalize it. See, d- don't be the ship's captain who thinks you can keep going in this direction and not run into the rocks. And what what has this led to? This, this great defender of the Christian faith couldn't guard his own heart. And it has led to massive destruction. Destruction of, of many young women, destruction of a ministry, destruction of many people's faith, destruction of his family. See, when your belly, your desires, your hungers rule over you, no matter how smart you are, no matter how well-educated you are, You do shameful things, and then you rationalize it, and you justify it. You say, well, because of my position, I deserve certain things. This this can't happen to you. So, So no matter your position, no matter your title, no matter your pride, don't just look at the culture and say, oh, my gosh, it's going somewhere. You may be going somewhere. Don't be deceived. Get some help. And when I say that, it's not reading a book. It's getting somebody who can put their hands on you and say, Paul, like this, not like that. Every person in this room has to have that. Let's end with one positive characteristic of those going in the right direction. I want you to circle these three words. Verse 17, walk... Verse 20, wait. And chapter 4, verse 9, patience. You feel that, don't you? Let, Let these three words, walk, wait, patient. Just let them be like three hands pressing in on your soul right now. Walk, slow down. Walking is the speed at which God moves. Remember this in Genesis? God comes back in the garden. He's walking. That's the speed God moves. Most of us need to slow down in order to catch up with God. We're simply just going too fast. We're too much in a hurry. And when you're too much in a hurry, you forget important things. You begin to drift. So you've got to walk. You've got to wait. You've got to wait on the Lord. I mean, one example after another. In the Bible, of people who just didn't wait and decided to take things in their own hands. And it led to destruction. Patience. Practice. Be patient. Keep practicing the mind of Christ. Surround yourself with people who are practicing. So you go, I'm encouraged by their practice. I love the title of Eugene Peterson's book on the Psalms, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's what Paul's talking about here. Let me just end with this quote. One aspect, he says, of the world which is harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired all at once. Our appetites have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Everyone is in a hurry. The people I pastor, they want shortcuts. There is a great market for religious experience, but little enthusiasm for a long obedience in the same direction. It's it's absolutely necessary that we have people to imitate. People close enough that you say, and you've got to say this to somebody, you have permissions to permission to put your hands on my soul and shape me, help shape me into the image of Christ but you've got to have a good self-assessment that you're not deceiving yourself because you could have a lot of people around you that feel like they're doing that, but you could just still hide. So easy to hide. Instead, walk with Jesus. Wait on Jesus. Practice to be like Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful for this clear scalpel from Paul and James that that cut through a lot of stuff that we like to pad ourselves with. A lot of false thinking, a lot of deception, self deception. And as we walk away, as we have discussions around this, may you you bring to mind your truth, your way. Would we not be proud? Would you shape us into your image using these words, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.